All righty, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, we are continuing a, our second week in a little two-week mini-series that I've called A, a Rooted Community. Uh, by way of reminder, next week we kick off what is going to be a multi-year journey going verse by verse through the book of Luke. And uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, was written by a man who did eyewitness t- uh, uh, research. He went and he spoke to the men and the women on the ground to write a biography of the life of Jesus so that we would have confidence in who Christ was. And as we read that, we have a chance to really look at what did the eyewitnesses say happened? How did it happen? What did Jesus say? And we can set the record straight. That begins next week. But this week, I've taken two weeks, uh, last week and this week, to focus in on what it means to be a biblical community. Last week, we focused in on prayer. And uh, I hope you were blessed last week, because really thought through, how do we pray for one another beyond just the surface? What is it really, how does the Apostle Paul teach us to pray? Today, we're asking, how do we care for one another beyond the surface? Okay? What's different about the way a Christian cares for a person from a non-Christian. I, I've been cared for very well by non-Christians in my life. I have. I've had a lot of non-Christian friends. I was a missionary overseas. I have a lot of friends here in the city that are not followers of Jesus, and they've cared for me very, very well. What is, a, what is the unique way that Christians care for one another? Let me give you a handful of scenarios. C- consider a child. I'm gonna give you some just very common scenarios. A child who has always been a little good boy or girl, he's followed the rules, he's, you know, hasn't gotten into too much trouble, he's claimed that he's put his faith in Jesus, but he gets to the middle school years and all of a sudden he starts acting out. He's doing some little things here and there that are showing you as a parent and showing the other people in his life that, you know, it's not quite how it was, that, that sweetness isn't quite there, there's a little bit of a trouble streak coming in. How do we care for that little boy? You have a friend, second example, you grab dinner with a friend that you know back long time ago, he had a huge problem with drinking, and uh, you know great work's been done in his life in Christ, he's kicked the old habit, and he's been walking firmly with Jesus, hasn't been tempted in a long time, but as you're out to dinner with him, you notice he drinks three beers, and uh, you're looking at him, and you bring it up, you try gently to just bring it up with him, I'm getting pretty real here, by the way, I think these are, these are very real scenarios. You bring it up with him, and uh, he says, oh, it's okay, it's only three, and he kind of goes on to the next part of the conversation. How do you care for that guy? Third scenario, someone comes in your small group, young woman, she's been coming, she's always, you know, always has decent responses to things, but one day she pulls you aside and just says, I gotta be honest with you, I, I am having so much doubt right now about my faith. I've got this person in my life, they're just telling me all these reasons why Christianity is not true. They've given me YouTube videos from famous atheists and those arguments are compelling and I, I don't know what to do. I don't even know if I really wanna be going to church right now. You're a Christian, filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do you care for them? Learning how to care for a person as a Christian is a vital part of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, it's actually a hallmark of ours that we love people the way Jesus loved us. The whole book of 2 Corinthians kicks off with this chapter one, which the whole book can, the whole chapter can be summarized in the word comfort. Over and over again, he uses this word comfort, comfort. We comfort others with the comfort that Jesus has given us. Christians are incredible, they should be incredible, at at being incarnationally in people's lives. This is a hallmark of Christianity. This is actually, in the Roman Empire, how Christians changed the world. 
If you look at why the Roman Empire came to an end, there's a wonderful book called Destroyer of the Gods by a historian named Larry Hurtado. And what he says, he says, the Roman Empire came to an end for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons was because a higher God worked through love to change the culture and it destroyed all the, the pantheon of Roman gods. And what was happening? It was just everyday Christians like you and me loving people so sacrificially, so just being in their life and bleeding for them and loving them that they were even loving their, their torturers and their enemies and their persecutors with such sacrificial love that even the Roman armies were looking at them going, we don't get it. We try to kill them and they come back and serve us a meal. See, Christians know how to do that because we've been loved by Jesus. Jesus went to the cross for us. We know what it means to be an enemy of God and to have someone, Jesus, love us while we were enemies. One of my favorite pastoral verses is 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. This has always been with me. It says, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, he's writing to this church, he said, we desired not only to share the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you've become very dear to us. That's the, heart of, that's the heart of not just a pastor, but of a Christian. So being affectionately desirous, desirous of you, we didn't just want to share the gospel. That was what we wanted to share, but we wanted to share our own lives. We were ready to pour ourselves out for you, to be in your life. Christians are excellent at that. And yet, there's actually more work in Christian care than just incarnational life. That's a huge part of it. If you do what I'm gonna share today without being the kind of person who's ready to bleed for someone you love for, you're gonna miss it. You're gonna come off as a talking head. You're gonna come off as one of Job's friends who, who just had the answers. No, that is, no, we start with Jesus-like sacrificial bloody knees. That's what we do. And we're in their life. They're going through hardship. We, we give our time. We give our love. We're there. But then there's also some work to do of learning how to apply the gospel into the unique circumstances people are going through and see breakthrough happen. We should be trained to be able to do that. Life is messy, hardships are messy, and every single person's problems are unique to them. And we have to custom tailor how you apply the gospel into different people's lives. Now, as we consider this today, uh, our text is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. So I want to read this to us, and then we'll dig into two needs Christians need to learn, two needs Christians need to kind of own if we're going to care for people well. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6. Reads this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now, you're looking at that and you're saying... That's the passage for how to care for people, Pastor Rafe? <laughs> I can think of a whole lot of other ones that might be more important, might be more pressing to how we care for people. Actually, that's a vital lifeline for how we care for people. Two needs. Number one, we want to care for people well. As I said, we start with incarnational bloody ministry. Yes. But need number one is this. We must understand the spiritual nature of people's challenges in life. We're Christians. We see the world differently than everyone else does. 
And at its core, we must understand that the hardships we are going through personally and the hardships others are going through of those we love are more than meets the eye. There is a spiritual reality going on underneath the physical reality, and that is the primary way that Christians care for people differently than every other person in the world. We're after the spiritual reality. Just as a gardener who is pulling weeds out of his garden, if he pulls the weed out and only kind of deals with the, 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 the layer on the top of the surface without pulling the roots out, the weed comes back threefold within the week. Christians need to get after the spiritual, deeper reality. Otherwise, we give temporary solutions, but we don't deal with the actual source of the problem. And in the source is always spiritual. So, verses three and four of our passage today read this. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. This passage is filled with war language. It's just over and over. There's unique words. There's other words that he can use, but he chose battle language, fortress language, waging warfare language. And I want you to know that when we're talking about caring for people, that's what you're doing. I know it sounds strange, isn't it? But think of the three scenarios that I walked through at the beginning of this. Even, let's just take the simplest one, the little boy who's in the middle school and he's starting to act out. If you, as a faithful Christian, in that little boy's life, recognize this is not just, this is spiritual. That little soul is under attack from a number of different places. Now that changes the way you come, up, come alongside him and love him, okay? In the Christian life, there are three different battlefields, and for our purposes today, uh, I'm going to call them three different fortresses, strongholds, right? He says, the, we, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. There are three different primary strongholds that come into a person's life, particularly into a believer's life. The three strongholds are the flesh, that's your, your inner nature, the world around us. That's culture around us and their ideology pushing in on us and the devil. That's the enemy of God and what he's doing trying to tempt us and distract us from loving God. And as a Christian, what we need to be trained to do is to recognize the stronghold, recognize where is the, where's the core of the problem coming from, diagnose it, and then apply the gospel to see healing and restoration come in that particular area. So let's go through all three of these together. First of all, there's three of them, the flesh, the world, and the devil. Let's go through the first one, the first stronghold. The flesh. Before you knew Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what was your nature? What, what was, what's the story of the gospel in your life? We have to know this to be able to fix it. Before you knew Jesus, our nature is that we were enemies of God and we had a corrupted nature. And that applies itself all across your entire life. Our mind was corrupted, meaning we thought wrong thoughts. Our heart was corrupted, meaning we felt wrong feelings. Our affections were off. The things we loved were not of God. And even when we loved things that looked godly, we loved them with false, emotion, with false motivations. And so even that was off. Our affections were wrong. Our emotions were corrupted. We were driven by emotions that were not of a godly nature, but we were being driven by emotions that were driven by all sorts of motivations and desires that were different. Our purpose for life was corrupted. Where are we going? Why are we going there? How are we going to get there? And what's the main place I'm aiming for in my life? It was corrupted. We were made to know and love God, but we had designed all kinds of 
wicked designs and intents for our life. Our purpose for life was wrong. Our entire being had been corrupted. That's our nature, our former, our flesh, our old way of thinking. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As a result of our corrupted nature, mind, heart, motivation, purpose, relationships, emotions, all of us being corrupted, we were children of wrath. That's who we were. Again, I preach this almost every week. Until you know who you once were, the gospel could never be as beautiful as it is. You have to know what you were in your nature. But then, but then you became a believer. And what happened? God revealed himself to you and you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And in your placing your faith in Jesus Christ, you recognize that Christ went to the cross to forgive all of your corruption. Every bit of it could be done away with and that you could be, and here's the key language from John chapter three, born again. Now that's not just spiritual language. To the believer, what we believe is that a true change in your nature takes place. Your mind is changed. Your affections are changed. Your purpose is changed. Your desires are changed. You actually become a new person. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. The old nature is now dead. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been raised with Christ to a new life. An old Puritan, I, I quoted him last week because I've been reading a lengthy book of his, but I'm gonna quote him again today, Thomas Boston. He writes this about the new, the new life. Regeneration, that's referring to the moment a person believes in Jesus. Regeneration is a real thorough change whereby the man is made a new creature. The Lord God makes the creature a new creature. As the goldsmith melts down a vessel of dishonor and makes it a vessel of honor, man is, in respect of his spiritual state, altogether disjointed by the fall. Every faculty of the soul is, as it were, dislocated. In regeneration, the Lord loosens every joint and sets it right again. It's not a change of substance, but of the qualities of the soul. Vicious qualities are removed, and the contrary dispositions are brought in in their stead. He does something brand new in you. Now this, this is who you are in Jesus. The truth, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, is that you are new. But now here's what happens. The old nature that you once had is not all the way gone. Meaning this, it's dead, and yet there lurks inside of every believer the flesh, the old self, the memories of who you once were that kind of claw at you to come back to your old ways. You are new. This is who you are, he's made you new in Jesus. And yet that old dead body inside of you claws at you and says, two more drinks, two more drinks. It would be good, wouldn't it? Remember how much he used to like two more drinks? You are new, but the flesh is waging war against you. First, first battlefront, first fortress we gotta deal with, the flesh. Second battlefront, second fortress is the world, the world around us. As followers of Jesus, we were once of the world. We were of the world, meaning we thought worldly thoughts. Whatever the popular opinion was, was how we had a worldview set. But then we believed in Jesus, and Jesus gave us a new mind, and we suddenly saw that the promises of the world were empty and shallow. That the ideas of the world didn't actually solve any of the real problems the world had, because the root problem in the world is sin, and no solution the world can offer can deal with sin. Only Jesus can. So we started to see the world differently. And the, the text of the Bible says that then we became set apart. That's actually the root concept behind the word of being holy. 
You're holy. You're set apart. The Bible actually calls us peculiar. Christians are these very strange beings that have been plucked out of the world and yet are living in the world as ones who are living for a different world. Very strange. John chapter 17, that great high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for unity among his church, and then he has this language, and he repeats it a handful of times. Verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Followers of Jesus, who are you? Well, now you are not of the world. You're like Jesus. You're heavenly. That's true. That's who you are. But now what's the problem? Now you're living in the world, and what happens? Well, you know, marketing is hitting us at every single, every single angle that we could possibly have. You wake up and you're breathing in ideology from the world. And when you beat a person up long enough in a particular way, eventually we start to hear the concepts and the ideas and the, the watered down messaging coming to us, and it starts to sound kind of right. You're peculiar. This is who you are. You're heavenly. You're not going to buy the, the, the foolish mentality over here, but it's just, it, sometimes it just sounds good, you know? So we got to deal with the world. Thirdly, we deal with the devil. Beyond our flesh, beyond the world, we face a spiritual enemy, a hater of God and a hater of Christians. He's proud, he's boastful, and he is seeking to devour anyone he can devour. First Peter chapter five, verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, in, in our modern day Christians, we use language like the devil and demons, but, but secretly we're all embarrassed by this. We're all embarrassed by this, why? Because we live in a modern, enlightened, scientific, rational age that has no space for the spiritual. And so we talk about it in small groups, we talk about it on Sundays, but then we live our life as if demons aren't around. And if that's not a real problem, that's, that's hurting that little boy who's now acting out in middle school. Wait a second, wait a second. Are you reading the same Bible I'm reading? As we go through the Gospel of Luke starting next week, it is laden with passages where Jesus is stepping into brokenness and revealing the demonic strongholds that are taking place underneath what everyone else saw. They all saw a man who was behaving crazy. Jesus saw a man possessed by demons. So this is the real world we're living in. We've become embarrassed by it. Christians need to actually remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We're dealing with a spiritual enemy. If we do not assume the worldview of the Bible, we cannot care for people the way Jesus did. And so, the first thing we need to do, here's the first need. Our first go-to mentality as Christians, mine often, is to deal, especially men. Men are, men are prone to this. We're problem solvers. Men and women, but men particularly, problem solvers. When we see a problem, we just want to have a solution to it real quick. Oh, I, okay, we need to discipline the child. Good, okay, discipline the child. It's going gonna, it's gonna to fix it. Okay, my buddy's drinking. Okay, we need a program. We need, uh, anytime you're going to think about drinking another beer, you call me, and I'm going to fix it. That's a great solution. Discipline is wonderful, godly. I teach a parenting class all about discipline, okay? I'm a big favorite, big fan of that. And having good accountability about big issues in your life, big fan of that too. But if we stop there, we forget what's actually taking place. So the first need is this. We need to recognize the spiritual reality underneath the physical reality. Now, number two. The second issue, second thing we need to do. 
we need to destroy enemy strongholds by confronting lies with biblical truth. Now, I'm gonna teach you how to do this right now. We destroy enemy strongholds by confronting lies with biblical truth. Verse four, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive in order to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. When your obedience is complete. Okay, now, we've talked about these three different strongholds that come in. And did you notice what he said? He moved from talking about strongholds to talking about ideas and confronting those ideas with biblical truth. Now, here's the concept. One of the ways that strongholds come into our life is that we begin to believe false ideas deep down inside. And we don't do it like we're gonna say, I'm gonna start believing a new belief. No, that's not how it works usually. Usually what happens is, as we're, we're walking through life with somebody, we're talking with them, we're in their life incarnationally, we're serving them lovingly, slowly what starts to come out of them, in little hidden moments, they don't even realize they're saying it, is something not true they're believing. And all of a sudden, a, a, a faithful Christian will hear a comment that someone's making as you're in their life, and they'll say, wait a second, that's a lie. You're, you just said something that was true of you before you knew Jesus. I know the truth of who you are in Jesus right now. And what you've done at that moment, you've uncovered the lie, and you've done what Paul is describing here. What do we want to do? We want to destroy strongholds. That's warfare language. That's pull it down brick by brick. We just tear it. Think, think Joshua and the walls of Jericho, and they're just falling down. That's what we do to a lie. When we see a lie that's become a stronghold in someone's life that we love, we figure out that lie, and then we don't stop until that stronghold is ripped down brick by brick. And it's an idea. And how do we do that? We expose it to the truth. And we speak the truth and pray the truth and just smother them with the truth until they remember the truth of who they are. Now, I'm training you how to care for others, but at the exact same time, I'm trying to care for you as your pastor. Because I know that in this room right now, however many folks are in this room, 100% of the people are dealing with either an issue of clinging to a portion of their old flesh, forgetting who they are in Jesus, listening to the ideas of the world, forgetting that they've been set apart and peculiar, or you're being attacked. And probably, whatever of those two is going on, the devil's just jumping on it. And he's multiplying it and manifesting it in your life. And so the problems are much deeper. So I'm trying to minister to you at the exact same time. Think about this. Let's go through the three that I described earlier, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And we'll talk about destroying strongholds. When we talk about the flesh, whenever we reveal, whenever we're talking in someone's life and we're discovering some kind of lie of the mind, something that says, you know, I, I just, I could never get over this. Let me give you a couple examples. Before someone came to faith in Jesus, they were tempted and struggled with all types of sexual sin. Maybe it was some kind of addiction to sex outside of marriage or an addiction to pornography or homosexual thoughts or any, you go through all these things that are part of the, the, the fleshly man or fleshly woman, okay? Now they put their faith in Jesus. 
Now, what does this mean? In their old nature, this is who they were. And now their flesh is clawing back at them saying, you know, it wasn't that bad. It's not that terrible. Come back over here a little bit. And so now what we need to do is we need to identify the little sins in their life. We need to identify the lie that they're believing that maybe this isn't just, maybe that's just who I am and I, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never have any success in defeating that kind of sin in my life. And we say, wait, no, no, you, you have an entirely new nature. You have been born again. That's a lie that you're believing. There, uh, William Spurstow, another Puritan, he said this. He says, small sins are as the priming of a post or pillar that prepare it to better receive those other colors that are to be laid upon it. What happens with the flesh is you've been born again, but then you begin to just let little sins into your life, little sins of the old flesh, and you leave them unattended to, and then slowly they blossom, they blossom, they blossom, and all of a sudden you're behaving in the exact same sins that you were behaving before you knew Jesus. The flesh. The world can oftentimes take bunkers up in our heart, and I've seen this on overdrive in the last few years, where ideas that sound so good and polished begin to sound just right. We just, we've come through and we're in the midst of all kinds of conversations about gender, about sexuality, about race, about justice. All the t hot topics, Every one of them. There's all these like, opinions to be had, books to read, all of this. At the end of the day, a lot of the ideology, it's coming from fleshly thoughts. And, and, and slowly, I've had so many conversations with folks trying to work through these different topics and trying to navigate them. And what's been happening? We're faithful Christians are looking at the ideology of the world rather than starting from the scriptures and looking up and saying, what do, where do I get if I start with this? And why are they doing that? They're forgetting who they are. They've been called apart from the world. They're, they're, this isn't them anymore. They need to go back to who we are. So we identify the lie. Now, how about the devil? How does he play out in real world situations? I want to give you an example here that is important. And actually, I'll, I'll quote C.S. Lewis here in just a moment. The first place the devil ever attacked was a marriage. That was the first place he ever attacked. Adam and Eve in the garden. He went straight for a marriage. The very first marriage. It was a beautiful marriage. Adam and Eve. And he attacked it. He got, he got them while they weren't looking. Adam was supposed to be the defender of the family. Who did who'd the devil go to first? He went to Eve. He, he, he went around the guy who was supposed to stand there stopping wickedness from coming into the family home. And he attacked Eve. And then Eve was deceived and then Adam just took the bite. He just blatantly sinned. Now, imagine a marriage for a moment. My wife and I will just, I'll pick on our own marriage here. Sorry, Sarah. But my wife and I will oftentimes say, you know, sometimes... Sometimes it just feels like the air got cold in an evening. We don't know why. It, not, no one did anything wrong. We didn't get an argument. But all of a sudden, it's like, I feel like we're not, there's no like intimacy of communication taking place here. Like, we're just kind of avo avoiding each other. Now, what's going on in that moment? How did we get there? And then you don't kind of deal with it and kind of like, this is silly. Why are we talking? And then it, all of a sudden, the evening, it just feels like, well, are we mad at each other? I don't think we're mad at each other, Right? The married couples are kind of chuckling because this happens, right? The air goes cold in the room. You don't quite know how it happened. This can happen not just in marriages, but in friendships, other relationships as well. All of a sudden, there's no talking. There's no intimacy. And, and then, you, you know, I was talking to another friend recently, and uh, he was talking about challenges in his marriage, and, and the idea was, oh, you got you to start dating your wife more. You, you know, these are, these are good things. Yes, date your wife, of course. My wife's saying, yes, go on dates with me, please. She's nodding her head. All the wives are, yes, of course we need to do that. But what is Satan doing? 
What's Satan doing? C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he describes a, a senior demon instructing a younger demon how to manipulate a marriage. Listen to what he says. He says, when two humans have lived together for many years, it usually happens that each has tones of voice and expressions of face which are almost un unendurably irritating to the other. Work on that, demon. Bring fully into the consciousness of your patient that particular lift of his mother's eyebrows, which he learned to dislike in the nursery, and let him think how much he dislikes it. Let him assume that she knows how annoying it is and does it to annoy. If you know your job, he will not notice the immense improbability of the assumption, and of course, never let him suspect that he has tones and looks which similarly annoy her, as he cannot see or hear himself this easily managed. Okay, what am I trying to show you here? I actually think this is exactly what the demons do. You know, when we think of spiritual warfare, a lot of us are thinking fortune tellers and Ouija boards and, you know, like crazy movies. Yes, that's all real. We talk about that another day. I teach classes on that stuff too. Most of it looks more like this. He's looking for weaknesses of the flesh and then he multiplies them. And what do we have to do? We need to take every thought captive. At the center of every stronghold in a believer's life it is an, a lie of the enemy, a lie or a series of lies that we're believing. And Paul states that we need to break those by identifying the lie, tearing it down, and bombarding it with the truth. Now, let's walk through this very practically. I'm gonna give you five ways to do this. And this actually comes from a book I was reading recently on uh, biblical counseling. It was aimed at folks who are professional counselors. Um, it was aimed at pastors who were trying to counsel folks. But actually, as I read it, I thought, this is material that every Christian needs to be exposed to. First of all, when we think about lies that we believe, think of those three scenarios, the marriage, the little boy, the guy who's drinking a couple too many beers. First of all, it's lies of the mind. First is lies of the mind. Second, lies of the affections, what we desire, what we think we love, right? Third, lies of our identity. Who do we think we are? Whose do we think we are? Fourth, lies of relationships. What's our role in terms of people and other relationships? Fifth, lies of purpose. Where are we going? And sixth, if I have time, I'll get to lies of emotions. Let's work with the first one. Strongholds of the mind. We take every thought captive. Again, I'm repeating myself. It's so important. Once you identify a lie someone's believing, I just, I'm just always gonna be tempted in this way and I'll never be able to overcome it. I, I just, you know what, my dad was an angry guy and I just have an angry temper. I've, I've, I've counseled so many young men who are dealing with pornography and what do I hear them say? I'll just always be dealing with this. Okay, wait a second. That's a lie. That is, where'd you get that idea? You didn't get that from this book. That's not where that came from. Where'd that come from? That was either from the flesh or it was from a hypersexualized community that you're living in who's trying to bombard you with that idea, or it's from the devil just multiplying it, but I'll tell you where it's not from. It's not from here, because the Jesus I know breaks strongholds, and the Jesus I know gives you new life, and he gives you a new mind in Jesus so that you will hate what you once loved. Now, this is not easy. This is not just like, oh, now you know the truth, and we just get on with our day. Wonderful, let's move on. No, you're in their life. But we keep going back to the truth. We say the truth. We pray the truth. We live the truth. We demonstrate the truth. Until one day the guy wakes up and he says, Not I don't ever want to see a pornographic image again. That makes me sick to think about that. And we don't leave until the truth has become the new stronghold in their life. 
Do you see that? The enemy has set up a stronghold that has convinced them of a lie. I will never get over this sin. I'll have maybe a little, you know, good weeks, bad weeks. That's okay. That's just, that's not normal. Victorious living in Christ is normal. You will be changed. Why? You're a new person. We expose them to the truth. Their mind. Number two, strongholds of the affections. Now we deal with the affections. Our loves. What we actually long for. Here's what we, we, we realize about lies. When people are stuck in habits of sin, it's not just that they hate this. They actually love this sin. They, they do. The guy who's going for the third beer, he wants the third beer. He, maybe there's a part of it, there's something in him that's like, I, I don't want the third beer, right? But really, when he's going into the third beer, he, he's drinking the third beer because he wants the third beer. He thinks it's good. Now, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. That's who you were. Before you knew Jesus, your affections were corrupted and you loved sin. But Jesus went to the cross from you. He defeated sin, Satan, and death. He rose from the grave. He made you a new person, filled you with the Holy Spirit, and he changed your affections. He changed your loves. And the truth of who you are in Jesus is that you love Jesus far more than you love any kind of sin. And that the Holy Spirit's inside of you and he desires to bring all of your changes and is able to bring all of your affections into alignment with Christ's desires and affections. You don't love that anymore. That's the old lie. You don't love it anymore. You might think you do, but what you're doing is you're just listening to the old self. If you've been born again, you have a new power inside of you. And you deal with the loves. So you've got... When you're counseling other people... As Christians, we need to learn how to be very direct. And the only way that can happen is if you built such a deep relationship with them, showing them that you love them and you're in their life, that you've earned the credibility to say, hey man, that's a third beer. You're behaving like you used to when I knew you in college. And you're a Christian now. And your witness matters, and that's sin. Now when someone speaks like that into your life, you know what happens? And when they love you, it's powerful. It's very powerful. Christians have become so weak in our confrontation. So weak. We're afraid to say the simplest direct truth. We're afraid to say that's a lie. We're afraid to say, world, that's a lie. No. And we're afraid to look at our friends and say you're believing a lie. Number three. Strongholds of identity. At the heart of so much sin is this identity issue. Who am I? Whose am I? The great lie that perpetuates all of us in some way is that we have to be self-sufficient. This is an identity thing. Who am I? Well, at the end of the day, I, I just have to be better. I have to do better. See, even as you're hearing my sermon right now, many of you, what you're thinking is, I just have to do better. I just gotta get over this. I gotta break my habits. Oh, I got so much to do. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Wait a second. Self-sufficiency? That sounds like old nature to me. When I thought I had to be perfect, I had to get over all my issues in my life on my own, I had to grab power and take it, I had to use other people in order to get ahead, that's old nature. Wait, who am I now? What's the truth? 
I did nothing to earn my salvation, and I can do nothing to save myself or, or secure my glorification. That's Jesus working powerfully in my life, and my aim in life is to present myself before Jesus as a sacrifice daily so that he will have his way with me. There's no self-sufficiency in the Christian life. This is not just find a way through it and muscle your way through. That's a lie. And you know who really is good at that? The world around us. They multiply that lie a thousand times over and over. And a Christian standing on the gospel says, who am I? I'm a gospel guy. I'm a, I'm a, I couldn't do this if I tried guy because I'm not that strong. There's no way I could. I know my sin. I know the corruption. I know the way my flesh clings to me. But guess what? I know a guy who defeated my flesh and I'm holding on to him. See, we just keep coming back to that. We pray prayers like this. I wrote this prayer down. I am not the sum of my mistakes as Satan would like me to believe. I'm a sinner in need of constant grace. I am not perfectly glorified yet, but I'm justified and new in Christ. My nature has been changed. I'm no longer who I once was. We're getting after identity. Who are we? See, a lot of the, a lot of the pronouncements we have to fall into sinful habits, whatever they are. I've, I've picked on some overt ones like drinking and pornography and sex, but there's other ones like pronouncements to control, wanting to control everybody that's happening around you, control everything that's happening around you. You know, you kind of like secretly jump in and manipulate things here or there, or, or pronouncements to anger, or pronouncements to, to melancholy and sadness. All of these things are, it comes down to identity, doesn't it? Whose am I? If you're Christ's, that changes you. We need to bombard ourselves with the truth. Fourth, strongholds of relationship. You know, before you knew Jesus, how do we treat others? Well, our world fundamentally revolved around us and what we were trying to get done in any given moment. And that, that means everybody else, even those we loved, were being used by us in one degree or another. We saw them as tools to be used for something, even if we just wanted friendship. We didn't know anything about sacrificial love not getting anything in return, about sacrificial love of our enemies. Oh, we didn't know that at all. But then Jesus got a hold of us, and he loved an enemy like us. And he filled us with his spirit. He, com he commanded us to do the same thing. And that's now actually who we are. We're like little Christs in other people's lives, not, not saving them, but stepping into their brokenness. See, we have to define our truth of who we are. He's given us a new nature. Strongholds of purpose. Where are we going in life? What's the aim we're aiming for? You talk to somebody who's going through battles with career, right? Battles with desire for wealth and, and where they want to be in the future and the homes that they want to have and what they want to do with their kids. And, and you start saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Where'd you get all those ideas? That's not, that wasn't this. That wasn't the, that wasn't the guy or the girl I knew who, who, whose purpose was defined by Jesus and wherever he would lead them, whether that's poverty or riches. No, we have a different purpose. You're believing this, and so we expose it to the truth. Last one, I'll do it briefly. Emotions. This one we gotta, really got to work on because our emotions can just drive us sometimes. And I, I called out the men before. Women are particularly prone to this, letting your emotions drive you. And, what, and what, what do we need to know about our emotions? Well, wait a second. Jesus has got a hold of me. He's changed everything about me. Back here, I was driven by emotions, I would let my emotions get the best of me and then I'd act out. And we can't say that's just who I am. That's who you were. 
You put your faith in Jesus. You were born again. You were given a new hope. You were, you were set apart for a holy calling. Your emotions don't drive you. Jesus drives you. Your emotions don't define your relationships with other people. Jesus defines your relationships with other people. You're not prone to anger anymore. That's not who you are in Jesus. He's done something new in you. Now look, as we think about caring for others, here's what I'm hoping is happening in this place right now. There, there's, a, uh, there's a phrase we use in Christianity. In fact, we, we sing it. We just, I think we just sang it a little bit ago. Break every chain. These strongholds, they're like chains. Just imagine somebody who's just chained down to a floor. They're, they're, they're enslaved. They can't get away if they try. That's who you were. But in Christ, those chains have literally been broken. And when fortresses get, get set up in our lives... And right now, if you're thinking of your own fortress, your, your own little places where you've let habitual sin kind of claim ownership, kind of take, take a fort somewhere in your heart, what's happening is you're behaving as if you're still chained. And, and, and sometimes it's as quick as just realizing it, that you are not who you once were, that causes those chains to break and gives you new hope and gives you revival in Christ and sets you to a place where you never knew you could walk with Jesus, where that sin is done, once away, done, done away once and for all. And so Christian, I want you to know that is available to you today. That if you're walking in this room and you're saying that there are things in my life I just could never imagine myself getting over, they're unholy spots in my life, you don't have to leave this place that same way. He desires to break that chain in your life. It's not true of you. Number one, what do we do? We first realize we are dealing at the spiritual level. That's the, that's the lens of the Christian. Number two, what do we do? We tear down strongholds brick by brick. How? By exposing them to the truth over and over and over again until we see a new stronghold set up, one that demonstrates the gospel in that person's life. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you, and, uh, and I feel like I was only able to scratch the surface today with this. But God, however you take the words that I preach and you apply them into each person's life in this room, I pray, God, that you, would, that you would multiply this work. I pray, God, that right now in this room that you would be ministering to souls. And I do pray, God, that there would just be a wonderful chain breaking that takes place in this room. That we would realize who we are and whose we are in Christ. That we are not who we once were. That we're Christians. We're called apart. We're holy. We're peculiar. We carry with us the fragrant aroma of Christ and we've been granted the Holy Spirit not to linger in sin but to go towards newness in Christ. Jesus, I pray you help us with this. We are so prone to forget it. Grant us your mercy today, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, amen.